Just having a little cinnamon hazelnut coffee out of a cup that says New World Order. Woo! Does the Golden Stallion work for that? Well, if you mean the NWO from WCW, bet your ass not. <laughs> NWO for life, baby. Boy, I don't know if anybody saw any of those pictures of Kevin Nash. Like, wow, did that guy get his legs into shape? Shit. Anyway, uh, something else. You know, actually, I, I haven't talked about this in a while. But the NWA is on a tear. And I don't mean, like, you know, the, the Out of Compton NWA. I mean the National Wrestling Alliance. Uh, wow. I mean, that last pay-per-view, the last few episodes, I'm just ridiculously excited for the upcoming pay-per-view. I think that's airing January 24th. Uh, just amazing. That that pay-per-view of Into the Fire, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but, you know, you know, come on. <laughs> uh, it's amazing. You know what? I... When um, Allison Kay, when her match was, her, her tag team match was going to start up, and of course, uh, she ended up having to get a different tag team partner. But when that went down, I said, what, is ODB going to come out? And she did. <laughs> just like, holy fuck. <laughs> Called that one, but why not, you know? Oh, I'm such a big fan of ODB. She used to be one of the reasons I used to watch TNA all the time. She, she's something else. Uh, I mean, just just nuts, you know? <laughs> she's, she's just crazy. Um, and, and certainly not your usual, uh, you know, uh, like like diva heartthrob type, right, or whatever, you, you, however you want to go about that. I mean, it's not, it's not like, you know, she's not your Trish Stratus or, you know, any of those. Uh, she's just, she's, she's so damn funny. And you just, you totally believe that she's a legit badass in that ring. And, and it's, is really, really something, uh, just great matches all the way around on that. And, and man, are they, they rocking it. Uh, I know I have other listeners who are really, really into that action with me. And so anyway, just letting you know, yeah, I've been, I'm still loving everything that the NWA has got going on though. I will admit I miss the fuck out of Jim Cornette, uh, old corny, not, not having him around. You feel it, but they're, they're doing okay with what, with uh, stew there with what they've got. Anyway, uh, let me have another, another sip of this action here because mm something that actually just came up on, uh, on my phone. I know I hate saying that too. Uh, but something that just came up on my phone, which blew my mind, got a notification Ordered some stuff uh, on Amazon, as we we all do, and sometimes unavoidably, right? But I was ordering some stuff on there, and it gave me a notification that said something to the effect of, it says, uh, see where your package is on a map. It's 10 stops away right now. And it was a notification that just came up in my my drawer on my Android phone. Um, Now, earlier in the day, I had noticed when I was just checking to see if something was arriving, it was the first time that it had given me, I mean, usually it'll say, oh, it'll arrive before 8 p.m. on such and such day, whatever. But this time, this morning, it actually gave me a time frame of between 1 and 5 p.m., which I had never seen before. Um, so then when this notification came up, obviously because I have the Amazon app installed on that phone, uh, it says, see where your package is on the map, like I said. And then when you click on that, it takes you to the Amazon app. It shows you your order at the top gives you a time frame of when it's going to arrive. And then it shows you a little map and that map keeps updating as to how many stops away, whatever this truck is. Now it's important to bring up two things. One is it says delivery by Amazon. It doesn't say delivery by UPS or delivery by USPS. It says delivery by Amazon. Now I think I mentioned this. It was either in a sovereign tech episode or it was in another Q and a where recently 
and understand, you know, yeah, I'm in the Silicon Mill yard here, but you know, I'm in, I'm in bumfuck New Hampshire, right? To see an Amazon prime delivery truck. And that's exactly what was out there to see that around where I'm living is mind boggling to me. I mean, I was like, what, what, really? Like here? I mean, you know, it's, it's not like you're not some hours away from Boston. So maybe that kind of makes sense because you're close to Bosnia wash, but that, that just doesn't. Anyway, I, I was kind of surprised by that. Uh, and it does appear that it was an Amazon prime truck that actually did the delivery. It, it was their own delivery service, which the rollout of that seems to have been pretty quiet, or at least I didn't notice it you know, when, when it, whenever that was announced. Um, but that is a thing now. Uh, the other interesting point to bring up about it is, I mean, that's amazing. Like, I mean, you're, it's like, you're waiting for Santa to come, you know what I mean? It's like, Oh, it's eight stops away or whatever. Uh, but I noticed that it stopped for a good while at seven stops. And I kind of wonder if maybe the guy stopped to get lunch, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it kind of like falls off the, the map, but the map is the interesting thing too. Uh, because Amazon is not using Google maps. They are using here maps, which we haven't talked about here maps. Boy, probably in a few years on sovereign tech. In fact, here maps was one of my initial recommendations. If you go way back and listen to the very first dark Android podcast, which, what was that? 2014, something like that. If you go way back, you will, I mean, I will have recommended on there here maps because at the time Google maps didn't allow for you to download, uh, you know, offline maps as to where here maps, you could download the entire planet. I mean, it was, it was really, really slick. Uh, and at the time Microsoft owned it. Um, now it's owned by like, uh, some kind of uh, automobile conglomerate. Uh, of course, a lot of companies like, I mean, the last time I think we talked about it was when all that horseshit went down with Porsche, you know, and Volkswagen and everything. Um, because those companies, a lot of European car companies were using here maps, but we know there, and, and I talked about this years ago when there was the big scandal, especially around Porsche and so on, um, you know, how they were like lying about the, or they're tricking the mileage and all that different shit. Um, and they had to do recalls on all those cars. Uh, you know, I said then I was like, oh, now it makes sense why these car companies weren't using Google maps, because if they used Google maps, Google would have found out that they were bullshitting about the mileage. And so that's why they were using, you know, that's why they weren't putting Android auto into their cars. They weren't doing any of that because if any third party got the data of how those cars were really running, then, you know, it would have blown the lid off of the whole thing, even though eventually it got blown off anyway. Um, but here maps, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating that Amazon is using that. I don't know that Amazon's a partner, uh, in here maps, but it did get me thinking that mapping software or, you know, mapping map data, uh, is, would appear to be a bit of a blind spot on Amazon's part. And the fact that they don't have like Amazon maps, I'm actually surprised that they don't. Uh, but maybe they're, maybe they are a partner with here maps and I just don't know about it. So anyway, that just happened a, a little bit ago. So I haven't really had the time to research it, but, uh, but that's new. <laughs> and speaking of new, uh, something that this has been a really frustrating thing for me. So what is, and I, I'm baffled by the fact that this is somehow controversial. One of the most controversial episodes of sovereign tech ever. 
was the recent episode. It's in three fifties. I forget what exact number it was. Maybe it was three fifty four or three fifty three, where I talked about Plex and the concerns around, and that was raised by a great, great Sovereign Tech listener. The concerns around Plex, you know, privacy concerns and everything else. Um, for some reason, people flipped out about that episode and they thought that I went too far. And it's like, no, this is how far it's gotten, folks. You know, I mean, you, you don't have to do anything about it. You don't have to deal with it if you don't want to. OK, but let's be honest here that the, you know, the data collection about you and so on, you know, it, it's gone that far. Uh, I, I, I Lately, I've just I'll tell you this. I've been so surprised at some of the emails that I get from people, the things that I've said that finally piss them off, that finally get them to be like, oh, I can't support you anymore, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they're not even crazy statements. And often enough, this is the other weird part too. And and, and this should be seen as a very real problem because I got a lot of negative reaction to, to what I had to say about Plex. Uh, and I agreed with the listener what he emailed in. I was totally on board with that. He gets he gets it all the way. You know, he, he he asked for a long time. <laughs> He's also a huge Dream Theater fan, so right on. Uh, but there's that. Then when I was calling people, I called Netflix users communists. It's still true. Deal with it. Um, and yeah, so basically, the only time that I lose people is when I rip on your access to entertainment. And that's what puts you over the edge. All the other crazy shit I've ever said on this show doesn't doesn't put you over the edge and, and make you want to stop supporting the show. But saying those things? I, I mean, look in the mirror. You know, when I call, like, Netflix cults and a lot of these, like, street, you know, all these other things cults. Um, yeah, because if they get insulted, the, the subscribers or the members, which I think would be a more accurate term, of these services, uh, they will walk away from any opposition, you know, or anybody that, that, that talks smack uh, about them. Uh, that, that's, that's a cult, folks. <laughs> you know, like that, that's kind of the definition there when you can't, when you, can't uh, you know, handle, uh, you know, you can't, can't take a little bloody nose on that. Just proves my point. I mean, it, it really does. It's amazing. I mean, again, I ripped on Plex. I ripped on Netflix. I ripped, I don't know. I'm sure I, I made fun of a couple other things. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a professional here at doing that. So why not? Uh, and, and that just drove people over the edge. That that should terrify the fuck out of us. That, oh dear, somebody made fun of my entertainment. Fuck, I can't have this. I won't support this kind of independent voice. How dare he? Woo. Anyway. So myself, I have yet to find a really great alternative to Plex. Also, the NAS I use uh, plays very nice with Plex as compared to other music streaming software. Um, so I haven't found an alternative yet. Uh, that's something that I'm kind of actively looking for. And and actually, we brought up some of the projects that that are you know that are in development. Uh, to where they could be a thing. And I'll certainly keep an eye on those. But for right now, I'm using Plex. So something I want to share with you is recently Plex changed the way that, and there's a solution here, folks. I'm not just complaining. I have a solution. How about that? I always have a solution. What the fuck are you talking about? But Plex uh, 
change the way that they display metadata and they also start pulling from a lot of different sources instead of, by default, instead of your embedded ID3 tags on say your MP3s. So they'll pull from Last.fm, they'll pull from all these different online databases and whatever. And I get that, I understand why that's a thing. The thing is, is that I spend, and you could say, oh, this is first world problems, what are you worried about, Stallion? Uh, don't don't give me that with this because I mean so basically what all right here what's been happening is is now Plex shows all of my music in and it just it jumbled it all together and everything looks fucked up and like there are if you have I get what it's trying to do like say you have an an album okay I don't know uh take your pick of the album like uh, a double disc of Judas Priest's Firepower how about that. Uh, say you have that, right? So I will put it into disc one and disc two, two separate folders. And I want it to show up in my, you know, in my app, I want them to show up to play as two separate albums. That way I can choose disc one or disc two. Well, now Plex sets it up so that disc one and disc two are just under one album, but it kind of fucks up the naming of that. And it'll say that it's, you know, firepower disc two, but then disc one and disc two are under that. It's all very, very confusing what they have set up here. And I could go into a much longer diatribe on a lot of that, but I don't, I, we got great questions to get into this weekend. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I do want to give you the solution to this. Ultimately for the past over 20 years uh, of my life, I mean, I, you, you got to understand this. I have MP3 files to this day that I originally had on my 98 iMac. Okay. So understand that I have been compiling, collecting, tagging, you know, making it as, as perfect. I have, I have a system that I've been using for now two decades. I have a system that I've been using for a long time. I am very meticulous in how I tag my music. I have literally millions of songs. Okay. I am not fucking around when it comes to my music collection. Never have, but I'm not fucking around. However, because of that, I don't need Plex or any other service fucking around with my music either. Okay. As in, I don't need them changing shit. I have everything just the way I want it in the embedded ID three tags. But now Plex seems to see it in its, uh, in its lack of infinite wisdom to just alter all that, you know, and just try and smartly, which s- someone recently told me, and I think this is so on anytime, the, anytime a, a technology says it's smart, like in the name, uh, it's, it's actually dumb and it's for the dumb dumbs. And then I think that that's actually, you know, right on like a smartphone. Yeah. It's made for idiots. So anyway, um, it, it, Plex is trying to smartly organize my music. It doesn't have to, it's already beautifully organized beyond any level that any online database could even dream of categorizing music. And especially because I've made, you know, special, uh, editions uh, of a lot of albums where I'll throw in a lot of extra tracks that just aren't available anywhere else, uh, you know, and so on. Right. And so when Plex started doing this and it just automatically started doing this to any new music that was uploaded, then it gave you the opportunity to have it apply to, to retroactively apply to any music you had in Plex previously. And it did all that. And 
It did a lot of that without my permission, but all these default settings, I mean, they're horrible. So I'm like, okay, there's got to be a way to get it back to even before when it was trying to tell me uh, what, you know, album artwork should be there and all this stuff, even though I already had all of that tagged in. When it was trying to tell me how to do that, at least it was better than it was now, than it has been in the past couple weeks. And so I look into this and... um, you know, finally, I find a blog post, and you got to understand this. It's an entire fucking long form blog post. It's like reading a Guardian long read of how, just how to tell Plex, hey, motherfucker, I just want you to read my embedded ID3 tags. I don't want you to pull any information from any online databases. I don't want you to fill it in. I don't want Plex to make it look nice, nice. I just want Plex to fucking read my fucking ID3 tags on my MP3s. The, The degree of which you have to go through. In fact, even finding the menu, the amount of screenshots that this, 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 Satan, blessed soul that wrote this blog post, the amount of screenshots you have to collect just to show where to find. I mean, because it's not just something like on the left sidebar, when you go into settings on Plex, you have to go deep. You're going like five, six screens deep in very weird places that it makes no sense that there should even be extra settings within these uh, areas to find where you can tell it no Plex only use embedded ID three tags. Then you have to reorder how, you know, where Plex pulls stuff from. And some of the stuff you still can't even turn off. I mean, it was such a pain in the ass. Now, it'd be fine. I understand why Plex wants to default to these things. I don't like it, but I understand why it has all of these varying defaults that that try to make things pretty. Because let's be honest, most people, or should I say, let's be frank, because I'm not going to lie to you. Let's be frank about it. Most people are not going to tag their shit and organize their shit to the level that I do. All right. And I get that. And that's fine. And so most people will just be like, Ooh, there's the new, uh, I don't know. What's, what's some idiot that makes music today. Ed, she ran whatever the, however the fuck you pronounce that. I've never even heard his name said out loud. And I'm proud of that. They put up his latest. Is it even a heat? They put up his latest album and they just want, they just want Plex to just handle all the tagging and, and just make it look pretty. And they don't give two shits. Now that ain't me. So, but I get it that that's how most people are because most people in this life are fucking morons. I accept that as well, especially in the year 2020. Uh, People have not gotten smarter. Okay, tell me how great the internet is. In fact, quite the opposite. So, um, but the, the depth and the lack of intuitiveness and I mean, these, these settings, you know, we, we talk about settings being buried sometimes. No, these are fucking six feet deep down to the hell, not even six feet. They're down to the aquifer. Like these settings are so deep in Plex. Uh, it, it's odd and I don't like it. And it's a pain in the ass, but I put a link in the show notes. If you want to figure out how to fucking do it for yourself as well, rock and roll. But fuck them. They're, they're getting it. In fact, Plex, they're, they're getting out of hand. They, they, they just announced a whole bunch of new subscription services. They're going to try and make it so that you can actually watch Netflix from your Netflix account in Plex and do all this other stuff. And it's like, man, what, whatever happened to care about me and my caring about me and my personal media? I mean, in the first place, I feel like a lot of people that would use Plex anyway, 
are people that already, you know, are doing the business with their ID3 tags and so on. You know, like I, th there's a certain kind of person that uses Plex. I get it. They're trying to please investors and have all these changes that they have to show on quarterly reports. Believe me, I fucking get it. But this is what happens when, well, anyway, we don't need to talk about monetary incentives. But there's a link in the show notes if you want to figure out how to set up Plex to read off of your properly done ID3 tags. Go for it. And, and it, it, you'll, you just take a look for yourself. You're going to go, wait, where the fuck was that setting? I've never seen anything like that. Even if you've gone, you know, balls deep in the settings of Plex over and over again, it, I know what you're saying. You're like, wow, he's making a big deal out of this. Yeah. But my music's a big deal to me. Okay. And I'm using your fucking software as a matter of trust, but whatever. So that said, why don't we get into some questions? Shall we? Now, you know, I was going to talk about the questions, but holy shit, I just got an email. I just, just looked here and that Amazon delivery I was talking about earlier. I just got an email saying delivered your Amazon order number, you know, and it gives the North and it says your, hi, Brian, your packages has been uh, delivered. How is your delivery? And it gives you a thumbs up, thumbs down. But underneath that in the email, there is a picture of the box sitting outside my home. Like, and, and this is, <laughs> it's not just some random picture. No, that is absolutely because there are, that, that is the front of my house. I can see my NWO shoes through the door. <laughs> what the fuck? That's fucking creepy. So, so now I guess that's somewhere in the privacy settings that I gave Amazon permission, uh, to take a fucking picture of my house. Okay. I mean, now, okay. Devil's advocate. Hmm. Um, I get it. Amazon has probably a very real problem with, uh, you know, uh, uh, packages saying they were never received packages, getting stolen packages, claiming to be damaged and all of this. And this is obviously solving that. I understand where Amazon is coming from and where this is beneficial to Amazon and doesn't even really require a privacy concern. Okay. I can understand all of that. This is the first time I've ever seen this. This is, this is brand new. I don't know if anyone else has had this experience, uh, feel free to email me about it and you can tell me what you think about it. Um, but holy shit. And so that, yeah, that, 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 you're not going to get this with UPS and USPS. Um, I can imagine a lot of people actually would want to take advantage perhaps of what they perceive as the security around this situation around this picture. Um, what seriously folks, I mean, the, the only point I'm going to end off with this on, okay. About the Amazon world domination tour here, what retailer is going to compete with that? Walmart is literally going to have to come out with its own delivery service if they want to compete with that. Like who new egg can't, can't do this. You know, <laughs> like there's Amazon's the one uh, crazy. Anyway, I really do want to get into our questions. So why don't we go ahead and, uh, and, and get into it? Yeah. You know, I mean, it, I can't believe it because isn't it enough that, I don't know, there's a Chrome extension that will alert you as to when your package has been delivered and you'll get a little notification in your notification bar or whatever happened OS you happen to be using, I, I, whatever. 
So again, I understand. I really do. I get where Amazon's coming from, but holy fuck. So yeah, it's Amazon's world. We're just living in it. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> I can hear Ellen behind behind me sighing about this. <laughs> she actually, she gives a shit about her privacy too. So I, wouldn't you say it's creepy? I was so freaked out. Yeah, exactly. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I couldn't Amazon believe- now has pictures of our house. Y- yeah, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, fuckers. We're, we're going to run off to the woods. We are. We are. <laughs> uh, all we need is our love, right? Anyway. No. <laughs> um, okay. So, anyway, um, let's get into... Actually, I'm going to skip this question. Let's get right into the right into the big stuff, since we ended up having kind of a long conversation. And I don't really want this to, uh, to go over an hour. So, this was a very interesting uh, email that I got sent in recently. Here we go. I fell way behind on episodes... Um, and just listen to this episode and in the email subject, it said Q and a one seventy nine, So it must've been that episode. Um, I had, and of course we're on, what is this Q and a one eighty three. So you're not too far behind. Uh, but anyway, um, let's see. I had a gi- digestive issue related to lack of bulk, which I solved by making a pudding with uh, chia flax and hemp seeds. I found the nutrition content of of hemp seeds very interesting. Uh, It really seems like they are tailored to the human body. The reason this sparked a response is that I'm really coming to believe that marijuana is what the Bible calls manna. Now, that's very interesting. Um, I don't know that I've ever really thought about that. And I guess if you're... So I actually, because I'd never really considered that. Now, I had heard... I had heard people claim, uh, who is it? Terrence McKenna whack job. (laughs) Oh man. The amount of people that quote Terrence McKenna to me. Um, I know Terrence McKenna had claimed that manna in the Bible was actually mushrooms. Uh, and of course, you know, if you know who Terrence McKenna is, you know what kind of mushrooms they were. Uh, and he's actually not even really the I don't really consider him to be the first person to have made that kind of, uh, you know, that, that kind of claim. Um, there's a tremendous book and, and I mean this, it is a tremendous, tremendous book. Uh, and it's one of those books now, granted this originally came out in 1970, this book I'm about to mention, and I will get into, you know, the idea of marijuana being manna in in just a second, but I want to give some, give some alternatives here and, and some background. Of course, when we're talking about manna, we're talking... Now, I mean, manna is described. You know, understand that in, in the book of Exodus, manna is described. Like, what it looks like. Like, it's kind of this white, kind of fluffy uh, stuff. Um, and, of course, I mean, there's a couple different theories. There's one that I hold particularly. But I'm always intrigued to explore other possibilities here. Um, and I think what you had to say was actually pretty interesting. So, Or was very interesting. And, of course, you know, you're a Sovereign Tech listener, so you know how brilliant you are. But anyway, there was a book that came out in 1970 by a guy named uh, John Allegro. And I've talked about this book in the past. He actually ended up doing a couple books. But anyway, the big one was The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. Uh, The full title of that is The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, A Study of the Nature and Origins of Christianity Within the Fertility Cults of the Ancient Near East. So you see where that's going. (laughs) Uh, this book, again, came out in 1970. There was a reprint 
Um, actually, a fairly rare reprint that was only reprinted, as I understand it, it was only reprinted in Europe um, in 1973, and it has an introduction that talks about the response that John Allegro got to the publication of his book. Now, understand John Allegro is not just some guy who, you know, he's not just some Alex Jones or whatever. This is a guy who had all kinds of tenure at the university that he worked. I mean, this guy is a, you know, is a legit, uh, actually, I think he's a PhD, but not, not that that always means something. But regardless, uh, John Allegro, you know, is a real deal. He got fired from his university position because of the response to this book. So because he published this book, he got fired from teaching. And, you know, I got to tell you, in my book, I don't mean Sacred Mushroom in the Cross. I mean, in, in my mental book, when you get fired from your job because of a book that you published, you're doing it right. And you must have said something because you you rattled some cages. Uh, and I, I have a lot of respect for this book, even though I don't agree with everything in it. I think it's one of the most fast. And and I, I know I say a lot of things are great because there are a lot of great things and they need to be a lot of things that I say are great are great because nobody else has ever really heard about them. So I sell them. Okay. As in, I mean, I put them over as being great, 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 great. So you hear me say that a lot, but often it's because it's something that no one else has ever really heard about or very few people have, but understand this is a great book. It is a very odd book. I'll give it that. But I also consider it as far as religious texts and religious exposition books go, I consider it one of the most important books ever written ever flat out ever okay then that's i mean that's not a work that's a shoot right as they say in the wrestling business i mean that this is a wild book with a lot of great theories in it and this guy did the work and he did the work so well again he fucked with some people's heads and he ended up getting fired <laughs> okay from you know from university so um, in this book, he makes this overall claim that, uh, in fact, there's, it's a particular, it begins with an A, I can't think of it, it's a particular type of mushroom, but it is a hallucinogenic mushroom. It, it, it's a popular one that, that, that's kind of all over the place. Uh, but regardless, his claim is, is that really all religions actually come from these fertility cults that also doubled as mushroom cults, you know, where they would take mushrooms and, you know, go through the hallucinogenic experience uh, have orgies and all this stuff. And then, you know, you end up with whatever religions happen to be out there. Now, I mean, he's not just going after Christianity. He basically takes them all on in this book, but in 1970 going after Jesus Christ is a good way to get you on, uh, on the cover of the New York times bestseller or on the top of the New York times bestseller list, right? Makes sense. So his theory overall, I think, or his abstract notion that religion comes from the consumption of a hallucinogenic, I think is actually spot on. A point that I've brought up even in recent episodes of Sovereign Tech. In fact, we were talking about the, the cave art found in Indonesia. That's like the oldest cave art we, we know of now. Um, I've, I bring this point up many times, and I'm not the only person that's, that's talked about this. People who are much more interested in, than I in this sort of thing have also brought up this point well before I did. And that is, is that our ancestors, okay, our ancient humans, our more primitive uh, counterparts, they could not, you, you cannot, you can't survive 
if you have any break with reality, when you don't have civilization or, you know, any kind of safety net effectively around you, that uh, society, even uh, larger tribes or civilization, you know, would really allow for. You have to be completely in touch with your surroundings or you are food for wolves. And I think that at some point, because this question gets asked a lot and a lot of people wonder about it, how did the first religion ever come into being if the very the, the very uh, ability to survive on planet Earth as a homo sapien required you to not believe in things you can't see, okay? Or that something that you can't see, you've never talked to, whatever, is you know going to come and save you. You know, how does that happen? And... I've often referenced this book from John Allegro that that came into being because somebody, you know, I don't know, they were starving, whatever. They had some, uh, they had some mushrooms that were out there, um, or maybe they got it boiled in with stuff, whatever. I mean, because anyway, I'm not going to go down that road, but they consumed something like this. And then they started seeing shit that nobody could have ever fucking imagined at that time. And then that person was seen as, whoa, you are in contact with some higher forces here, or blah, 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 whatever that ended up being. And basically you end up with your first priesthood uh, that, that is effectively a mushroom cult. So, I mean, that's my kind of running theory with how a lot of religions, if not all, really started. Um, I mean, there is some wiggle room within, like, is something... <sighs> I could get into a complete side subject around, say, things like Freemasonry, where Freemasonry may just be uh, allegorical representation of actual science, okay? As in, it looks like a religion, but in reality, it is all uh, symbolism that represents scientific principles, Okay. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm not pro Freemasonry. Don't, don't, don't confuse me on that. I'm just saying there are some religions that I think that's how they ended up coming into being is that they have carried down what they would call traditions, which are actually scientific concepts that have been muddled. But a lot of just the, the, the wackier shit. Yeah. It probably came from mushroom cults, you know, like I'm, I'm okay with that. So now Terrence McKenna would, of course, you know, kind of run with this idea and say that it's, it's manna and, and, and the color might, I don't know, kind of fit in with that. Um, I, you know, I don't necessarily go down that road. Uh, I totally recommend reading John Allegro's work. I do not recommend reading anything by Terrence McKenna, that fuck nut. Uh, I mean, look, this is just a guy who, he was just a horny fucking bastard, right? <laughs> Let's just, let's just call it. Uh, and he didn't have like enough uh, personal charisma, in my opinion. And this is true for a lot of these kinds of guys, especially in the 60s and so on. Um, I mean, and to say nothing of whether or not he worked with the CIA, you know, but that, that, that's a whole other thing. Uh, but a lot of these guys, they just didn't have enough personal charisma. So they basically had to drug people up to make them like them. I mean, that that's, that's the reality around a lot of these different figures. Uh, so regardless of that... Um, yeah, the idea of it being, you know, that, but that concept of, of mana uh, actually being mushrooms, I mean, I, I could kind of see that and always understand that the Bible, especially Torah, especially the Old Testament, um, 
you know, works on a lot of different levels. It can represent a multitude or multiple things. It, it can be, it can be telling you actual history or a representation or kind of a retelling of some kind with some names changed here and there of history or, uh, and, or it should be and slash, or it can be something metaphorical. It can be something abstract. Okay. It can be representative. So, you know, it doesn't just have to work on the literal level. And in uh, rabbinic Judaism, that's considered order of the day. Like, that's just how it works. So the idea that manna could be, you know, something actually very real and exactly what it says, but then also be mushrooms or maybe also be hemp seeds or something like this is entirely possible. But I think where the emailer is going with this, with this interesting theory, uh, and I don't know if it's a he or she, actually, I apologize, uh, or, you know, anything else. Um where you're going is that, that I'm guessing the hemp seeds were basically, you know, the hemp was, was basically the, the, the manna and that they were, they were surviving off of that, like making hemp cakes or, or something along those lines. I'm guessing that's where you're going. Now I never really thought about this like just never, never really crossed my mind. Um, and I decided, I was like, you know what, let's do, let's go to a little search engine and, and let's see if anyone else has said anything to that effect. And I really only found like a couple of, of, of people who, who actually kind of took the idea somewhat seriously and had, had a uh, similar uh, theory. And there is, there's a, a couple things. Um, there is some suggestion that like the, some of the terms used for, I mean, depending upon the translation that you're rocking, uh, like with bread and things like this, that at some point that some of these words are relative to the term for, for hash. Right. And so, yeah, I mean the idea, and, and this is something I've heard as well, the idea that somehow uh, like these, these foods, um, or at points where the Bible is talking about food, cause John Allegro would go down this route as well, uh, that it's actually referencing like you know, again, some kind of, uh, you know, hallucinogen or, or something along those lines. It's not actually talking about real food or like real bread or, or manna is just something else. The idea that it's something like that. Um, I mean, it's possible. And there's some linguistic research that you can do that, that would point at that. Or what would you call it? There's some philology that you would do that, that could point at that. Um, so it's an interesting idea. Uh, I mean, as far as how well it works with the human body, um, you know, that's, that's certainly fascinating to, to look into as well. I don't really have necessarily on that. Um, I, I mean, one thing to bring up is that when the Bible mentions manna, there's no real need for it to even necessarily be one thing. Like it could be multiple things. Like there's points where it could be talking about mushrooms. There's point where points where it could be talking about, uh, you know, hemp, marijuana or hemp seeds, whatever. Uh, there's points where it could be talking about something, you know, some kind of weird algae, uh, a, a hybrid product of some kind. Uh, I mean, my, where I, you know, I'm open to that. Okay. My, where I sit on this and I've talked about this in the past as well. Uh, I definitely am on board with uh, George uh, Rodney Dale and George Sassoon's work also from the seventies around the same time as Sacred Mushroom and the Cross uh, where they, they suggest that there was a mana machine. There, there was literally a machine that the Israelites were carrying around with them uh, during the Exodus, during the 40 years in the wilderness, uh, that would produce this. And their theory was it was some kind of like algae compound food 
that they would get, which is fascinating because that's exactly what we're talking about or what we have talked, we as a species have talked about in the past couple decades of how you could sustainably feed astronauts in space. So that gets interesting. Um, George Sassoon and Rodney Dale wouldn't go necessarily as far as to say aliens. A lot of what you call, you know, your ancient astronaut theorists or ancient aliens guys will point at this book uh, and the work of, of Dale and Sassoon uh, and say that that's, that, oh, but that's because it's, it's uh, advanced technology from aliens or something. You don't have to go that far. Um, the idea that the ancient Egyptians had some very, very advanced technology that maybe they inherited from uh, what other books would would call civilization X, as in a uh, you know a human civilization, an Earth-based civilization, nothing from outer space that existed before, say, even the Sumerians, right? So you know that it's some kind of inherited technology from civilization X. That's very interesting. You know, I'm 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 on board with that. Uh, but the Mana Machine is su- is such a compelling theory and interpretation of particularly the Book of Zohar uh, within Kabbalah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's tough for me not to read that and go, oh, yeah, I, I, see what, I see what's being done there. And that speaks to kind of what I was talking about earlier, where there are times where within religions, I think that they are using terms that are actually representative of, say, scientific concepts, or in this case, perhaps, representative of technologies. Uh, another an episode that I did, I did a review of... Uh, of an actual NASA rocket scientist from the 60s, uh, an actual book written by him by, uh, by Joseph Bloomrich, uh, that being Spaceships of Ezekiel. Uh, I did a review of that. I do recommend, if you want to hear more, like to go listen to that, because I, I deep dive on this a lot more um, in that. But anyway, I, I'm in the Mana Machine camp as far as this goes. Uh, I was, at one point, open more to the idea that it was, say, mushrooms or something like that. Not that that's something that the Israelites could have survived off of. Uh, I mean, there's also, you, you have to consider, uh, like, the work of Ahmed Osman, who his theory is, is that basically everything you're reading about the Hebrews in the especially the first five, six books of the Bible, or of Torah, uh, is, is actually retellings of ancient Egyptian stories. And, and we know who, you know, like who they were. Uh, so anyway, and if that's the case, then, you know, kind of all bets are off <laughs> as far as what the fuck mana was and, you know, all of this. Uh, but that that's another conversation to be had. Um, again, it's, it's an interesting idea. I mean, it, it really is. Uh, I, the other thing that I was really impressed by, by another person, like I said, who actually did a lot more research on this idea uh, than I did about, you know, manna being marijuana. Um, and I, and I was really impressed by this when I read it or when I was reading this person's post was that this person claimed that they thought the, the most authentic translation of the Bible, old and new Testament was actually the Dewey Reams, uh, translation, which is kind of the, basically the Catholic version of the King James Bible. And I was impressed by the person saying that because I more or less thought I was the only person that ever said that. Um, I agree largely with that sentiment um, that it is, I mean, the most literal that we have is what's known as the New American Standard Bible, 
Okay. Uh, in fact, there's two different versions of that. There was a revamp done in the nineties to try and make it more readable. And then there was the one in the seventies. There was also the American standard version from 1901. That's a very literal translation, but it does some funny things. And especially with the word Jehovah, uh, but the Dewey Reams, the reason I always appreciated that Bible more than any other, not because it's Catholic, okay, even though I would argue that the church, the denomination that exists in the world that has, shall I say, proper claim to the continuance of the tradition of Christianity, I would argue is Catholicism. Again, I'm an atheist, folks. It's not because of that. It's because the Dewey Reams is a translation of the Vulgate right? Which is the Latin text uh, of the Bible. And, but the Vulgate, now, now you could say, well, wait a minute, but then the NASB and the ASV and all this, they're based off of, uh, you know, the Masoretic text and Biblical Hebraica and so on. You know, like, isn't that better that it's actually translated from the actual Greek and Hebrew? Oh, no, 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 no. And, and of course, uh, some Aramaic. No, uh, <laughs> because the Vulgate was translated from uh, shall we say texts that were either the autographs or closer to the autographs, especially when it comes to the New Testament, uh, you know, that then compared to what most modern Bible translations are, what Greek texts and, and uh, Hebrew texts they're basing it off of, because those are not autographs. Autographs meaning the original written down by whoever happened to actually write them at some point. Okay. Uh, like those all come from 12th, 13th century, something like that. Like, you know, at best, it may be a little older and maybe you found that and, oh, this is actually based on older texts and all things and everything. I personally think as far as a complete Bible goes, okay, we're not just talking about Torah as far as a, you know, I shouldn't say a complete Bible, but as far as the Bible that has the old and new Testament, I think the Vulgate is still really the gold standard uh, of biblical or of where, if you want to go get biblical knowledge, especially when it comes to uh, the New Testament, that's where you want to go. Uh, because very funny things have been done, even with the King James Version and so on. I mean, it's really crazy. Now, if you're just interested in Torah, uh, well, stick to what Hebrew we found. And a lot of stuff has been added in, like, say, from the Dead Sea Scrolls with, like, new JPS translations. Uh, but also the Septuagint is a wonderful thing to read in my opinion, um, and is, it's a similar, the Septuagint, I also, I feel like is a similar case to the Vulgate where the Septuagint is something that is closer to the quote unquote autographs, even though we know there's whole problems with that. We're not going to get into that story here, but the Septuagint, I think is a lot closer and the Septuagint also represents Ultimately, I would say a non-rabbinic version of Judaism that is very much worth exploring. Because there's not just one Judaism, folks, like in case you weren't aware. Uh, I mean, today you have basically today you have two of them, more or less. You have what's what are known as Kyrate Jews and then you have rabbinicism, you know, rabbinic Judaism. Um, but things haven't always been that way. And, and rabbinicism is somewhat of a more modern, uh, I mean, even within rabbinic, you know, rabbinic Judaism, you have different versions, right? You have conservative Jews, you have Orthodox Jews, uh, reformed Jews and, and, and so on. So anyway, um, interesting theory. I, I, I wanted to kind of address it. Um, I see that there is some philological evidence to suggest that, that you might be onto something there. 
Uh, I am still in the, again, I'm still in the camp of the mana machine, but you know, I, it's it, frankly, it is anyone's guess right now, as far as what man is, because nobody, nobody really knows. So, okay. Uh, let's get on to another question. Let's move off, uh, move on from that. And, uh, oh boy, we got a, got a doozy here. <laughs> Look at this one. Uh, let's open it right up here. Big black sovereign. Woo. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Big black sovereign. That, that, that's folks. I'm just reading it. Sorry if that offends, <laughs> but I can't help thinking of that every time I type out your email address. Ooh, of course, my email address is bbs at sovereigntech.com. So I guess bbs, big black sovereign. I wonder what's trying to be said there. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, um, I think it's fitting for you, given your triple black lifestyle, much of which is spent at the gym. Ooh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> uh, God, there's so many things I want to say. Um, all right. Uh, anyway, I do have a question for the Q&A this week. Uh, sometime in the future. So here's the question. Sometime in the future, humans may go to space with the intention of colonizing other planets in our solar system or planetoids and exoplanets. So Stanley breaking in for a second. This is fun because we went with history, the present, and now we're going into the future. This is perfect. What more could you want? Reading on, most of these environments will undoubtedly be incredibly harsh for life as we know it. I think you've mentioned in the past that you feel intergenerational ships are unethical for the children born on them. But does this also apply to human colonies of other celestial bodies? Also, if you have time, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the ethics of genetic modification of future generations to better suit these new environments. Live long and prosper, Slagathor. Well, live long and prosper, or should I say peace and long life to you as well, Slagathor. Um, <laughs> Oh, I, I don't know if we're going to have time to get into the genetic modification question, but it might just come up anyway. You know, that part might just come up with, with what we're going to talk about here. Uh, as far as, oh, this is so tough. This is a beautiful question. Um, because the first ethical problem, now you're right. You, you, you've got me right that I have a problem with gen, what they call generational ships where, Basically, if we wanted to go to Proxima B, that is a trip that is going to take decades, even if with with with, with propulsion that we can even dream of. Okay, <laughs> this is going to take a long time, and you're going to have you're going to have to have families on these ships, and the people that initially left the Earth in one of these generational ships are not the ones that are going to end up landing on Proxima B. Okay, it will be their descendants that end up there. That's why you call it intergenerational or a generational ship. Um, I think that, in my opinion, and so what I've said in the past, and you would be, if you haven't heard me talk about this before, I mean, let me just say, because when I did talk about it the, for the first time on Sovereign Tech years ago, um, I read some comments on social media around this very question, and they were the comments made in, in Facebook groups which is where you think people who are a little more invested in the subject, a little more knowledgeable would show up. The responses that people got to this question about whether or not it's okay to have, you know, kids in space, right, while you're on your way to another planet, uh, were absolutely terrifying. And frankly, just made me walk away saying, well, none of us or, or most of us are just not even ready to go into space. So 
let's not do it anyway. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's kind of how I walked away. Now, I don't really feel that way. There are those of us who absolutely are ready to go to space, in my opinion. And uh, I think, you know, kind of like Isaac Asimov would say, uh, you know, uh, what what is it? The people who think that they know everything are of great annoyance to those of us who do, right? <laughs> Basically, don't get in our way. Just let us do this. Um, so, yeah, my problem with having kids on a generational ship is that you are having children. And look, this is true whether it's in space or on Earth. To have kids with a set purpose for what those children are being put on Earth for, other than any purpose, frankly, other than their, their, not your enjoyment, okay, other than their enjoyment of life and you getting to be a steward and just take joy in their enjoyment of life, it is unethical to have, in my opinion, children for any other reason than that. Okay, now you can talk about propagating the species. Okay, I mean, that that gets into, we have scenarios where we can kind of cover that. But why do most people have children today? I guarantee if, if you get them down to brass tacks on it, you're going to find disturbing answers there as well. A lot of people, whether it's conscious or unconscious, I think a lot of people unconsciously have children to save their marriage. That is deplorable. How dare you bring another human being into this world with the purpose of somehow trying to to rescue a relationship that should not be clearly because you you know husband and wife are fighting all the time or something like that or perhaps because you're bored because you know your husband uh isn't man enough to want to keep fucking or something like that and who so you want to bring kids in the mix that way there's like another human being around Uh, I, i hope you realize i'm insulting both sides in the parental spectrum here okay Bottom line being, a lot of people don't have very good reasons, you know, and in fact, some of the most honest and, and like, <laughs> I mean, there's people who, who will come right out. I've talked with them. Uh, in fact, women who are absolutely brilliant and they, they just come right out and admit that, oh, this is totally to feed my ego because I think my genes should survive. I'm like, well, at least you're honest, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, okay, I, 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 I get where you're coming from. At least you're honest about that. But the only, only only ethical reason, in my opinion, to have children is to is for you to you know, uh, or is to bring someone in to enjoy life. And anyway, we don't we don't have to go on all that. All right. But to have kids with the purpose of okay, they are going to colonize another world. Um, who are you to tell another human being what their purpose in life is to be? Bottom line. Right. You're nobody. You are literally nobody. You have no right. And that's part of where it gets unethical to do that to children. Okay, to say nothing of, like, basically raising them in a sardine can. And the problems that exist around that. Now, again, if it were a situation where, well, we fucked up the earth so much, you know, we gotta go somewhere else, this is all we've got. Okay, that's completely different. Then this is the only habitable space for a child to grow up in. That is a completely different argument than the earth being just fine and dandy and, you know, t- sending generational ships, uh, you know, on interplanetary missions to, to you know, to, to other colonies or something. Totally, totally different. Now, am I a firm believer that humanity is meant to be a multi-planetary species? Meant to be genetically? Yes. Absolutely. I 
and I'm not the only person that thinks that. Plenty of people in NASA, of course they would, right? Their, their pocketbook's on the line. But you get my point. I'm not the only person who says such things. Carl Sagan would talk about that, you know, the only way to guarantee the survival of humanity, blah, 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 uh, you know, is, is through becoming a multiplanetary species. That is all fine. I have no issue with those kinds of statements. And again, I would argue, especially since I think some of us are genetically predisposed to be explorers, that it's just part of what we do. We look to the other horizon and eventually we find all the land on earth. And yet our imperatives, our biological imperatives within us want us to keep looking and to keep going to that next horizon. And that next horizon might be an asteroid named Ceres, or it might be Mars, or hell, it might be the clouds of Venus, which yes, we could inhabit those. I mean, it'd be a little hotter than Florida, but you could do it. And it'd actually be a much better prospect than Mars, in my opinion. We're, all these people talking about going to Mars are, 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 I mean, hey, that's fine. Go ahead. But the far more interesting and amenable option, I think, is literally living in the, uh, above the cloud layer, or you know, just above the cloud layer of, of Venus. But anyway, that, that's something else we've talked about on Sovereign Tech in the past. But there you go. So, um, getting to just about anywhere in the solar system, especially the more habitable places, say even Enceladus, uh, uh, Europa, you know, a, a lot of the, again, Mars, Venus, um, you know, a lot of places within the prime asteroid belt. Um, these are trips that are very, are, that are completely in line and very reminiscent of say, you know, the, the, the voyages of Magellan or the voyages of Hell Columbus or, you know, pick your, or Cook, you know, Captain Cook or t t take your pick. Okay. Um, they are not unreasonable and humanity is a nomadic species. Um, and I think going to other celestial bodies at the very least within our solar system, I don't, I don't think there's anything unethical about that about and about having kids on those other celestial bodies, especially some of these. I mean, they are wide open spaces, right? Um, you know, Mars could be very, I mean, yes, you know, you might have to stick within a certain area, but you could probably put on a spacesuit, whatever, get out there and, and, and do your thing. Uh, I mean, one of the important things that you want to foster in a little human being or what we call children, but they're just little human beings for as long as they're little is you do want to foster that sense of exploration, learning, freedom, art, right? Creativity. That's what makes us a species. That's why I think, I think creativity, you know, and which expresses itself often enough in art is really what defines us, distinguishes us as a species. And it always has, like we talked about in a recent Sovereign Tech where we have cave paintings, stunning cave art. Uh, which who knows what the fuck it's even trying to show, but stunning abstract, if not, or maybe it's very real cave art of very strange things, you know, 40,000 years ago. It's remarkable. It absolutely distinguishes us as a species. I would argue you cannot allow a mind to thrive in that way as in the mind of a little human being if they are contained in a tiny little starship or even, even a larger one you know, with no option of going to, say, another planet or back and forth or whatever and, and really being able to travel and so on, uh, those options don't exist when you are on a generational starship um, where they might not ever get to, you know, be able to, to, to stand on land in, in any way. 
Um, I mean, I'm kind of reminded of, I'm thinking of like uh, in, in Star Trek Enterprise, the, uh, the character of uh, Travis Mayweather, the helmsman. Uh, great character, great show, fuck, great show. But he is a space boomer. Um, he is one of the... He, space boomers is a name they give in Star Trek to people who were born, in, to humans that were born in space on starships. Now, what you learn is that, or, or what you discover as you watch the show, is that Travis Mayweather, yeah, he's a space boomer, he was born on a starship, but he's been to more planets, seen more cultures, experienced uh, different life forms, uh, including women with three breasts and <laughs> all this other kind of stuff. Or I, I, I think he means that they had three breasts. Maybe they had, I don't know, three vaginas. I'm not sure. But regardless, um, he's a little vague on that. But also, he, you know, we know that he ran into Orion animal women and everything, right? Um, he got to feed all of those things where he got to interact he got to be social because we are a social species. Um, he got to explore, got to put his feet on the ground. He got around. He wasn't just living his entire life on whatever, the ECS fortunate, right? On, on some little freighter. So his mind was allowed to, to grow. I mean, and I'm reminded the movie that actually Ellen and I reviewed recently uh, of Ariana or Annie Ara, not Ariana. Fuck. I keep doing that. Annie Ara. Um, where you see, I mean, this is, this is like great science fiction is meant to be. That's why I call it the science fiction method, where it is an exploration of possible futures and how things, you know, how humanity adapts to changes, sometimes rapid changes. I think Annie Ara was spot on in its exploration. And again, remember it's based off of a 1956 poem where without art, that human, the human brain just kind of goes into, I mean, almost like a zombie mode, which is what you very much see in that movie. And I think it's an accurate exploration of exactly what would happen. Uh, but to, again, to even engage in art, right? Remember in that movie, you had the little girl who, if you saw, if anyone else has gone and watched it, and I hope you have, because it's a brilliant film, um, the little girl, like when she goes into Mima and experiences earth and birds flying around and all this stuff, she can create art. Like she can come up with images and, and even just seeing that allows her to, to come up with abstract concepts and everything. But then once Mima dies, the art dies, right? And so I think, you know, when you, when you put humans in such a controlled environment in such a standardized environment, like a starship would have to be to even make that trip. I think you kill the creative impulse within a human being. And when it's a child that, that is developing within that, no good. And before anybody says, well, we can just give them a, like Mima or VR or something like that. Substitutes for substitutes, my friends. Our children deserve the real deal. Just like we, when we were children, deserved the real deal. And I know a lot of us didn't have parents who might have thought that way. Okay? And that's really sad and tragic. But at some point, we... I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a little long voyage. But we're talking... With generational ships, we're talking about people living dying. Entire generations living and dying. Aboard a tin can. And if we don't have to do that, why do it? There's so many amazing places just within our solar system that we as humans can inhabit. 
that we as humans can, uh, you know, can, can set up camp, as it were, and enjoy and, and find whole new ways to inspire ourselves. Please don't lock us up in tin cans and send us off to some far off, you know, planet that we, that some of us may never even see. We deserve better. Just by the very nature that we can develop the technologies that can even do those things, then let's keep being creative and come up with better than that. And let's do better for our kids. It brings up, I mean, a couple points. One is, is that, look, the earth is made, you know, you're talking earlier about how hemp seeds seem to just be made for us. Uh, I hear what you're saying there. One thing I can definitely say with confidence, though, is that the earth was made for us. We need to take care of this little ball. And while as we go off and explore all these other places, I assure you, there will be nothing healthier than us, our children, and so on, having, just knowing in the back of their minds that when all else fails, we have, we can get back to uh, safety. We can get back to the safety that is earth, that is really made for us. And with that said, I mean, that's a whole other reason that I wouldn't want to go off to places that, you know, you could never come back to earth for. There's a conversation to be had within all of this that also revolves around, you know, is it even ethical for humanity to land on a planet like even, say, Mars? Who knows? You know, here's the thing. We don't know. We know a lot more about Mars than we've ever known. Okay, but there's still a lot we really don't know. There may be life developing and evolving on there that in a couple billion years could be something comparable to humanity. It could be a sapient species. And us landing there could kill off whatever microbes might eventually turn into that. We could get into very, very big, deep, I mean, just a lot of scope questions around whether or not even that's ethical. Okay, uh, that's part of the reason I feel a little bit better because I don't have a great answer for all that. Okay. Um, that's a conversation that is going to need to be had for a good long while, because as I've also said recently on Sovereign Tech over the past couple of years, we, especially with the space force, you know, becoming a thing, all of this points at that the average human being is going to have access to outer space. I think within the decade, I could be wrong, but I, I think I'm pretty right on that. But part of the reason I'm a little more amenable to the idea of just inhabiting, you know, basically upper levels of the atmosphere of Venus is because maybe we won't be interfering so much with the development of life on some other planetoid, some other celestial body. So these are the big questions that we have to consider. And um, if someone's not willing to even consider them, maybe they shouldn't be in outer space. <laughs> But then the flip side of that, of course, that, that whole question is exactly what this, uh, what, what Slagathor here uh, <laughs> asked, which is what about, you know, what's the ethics of genetic modification of humans to be able to handle these other environments better? Um, that might be part of the answer of whether or not it's even ethical to land on a celestial body that has life developing and not interfering with that life developing is that if you altered humanity to a point where it is, uh, where it itself, you know, a human being is uh, more adapted and amenable to an actual environment, uh, 
Um, that that could I mean you're s- still kind of an invasive species, but that makes things a little more interesting. Um, anytime you get into the conversation around genetic modification or genetic engineering, it really can boil down to. I think for a lot of people it boils down to because here all right all right, all right here we go. Here's the thing. If humans are able to exist in space, and if there is some kind of adaption or some kind of adaptation that they need to do so, selectively and naturally, evolution will, you know, pick that out and we will go forward, you know, with, with, with that, that new adaptation, that mutation perhaps, okay? I think a lot of times when the conversation around genetic modification and engineering comes up, it comes from an initial premise of evolution is too slow. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm saying that's what I think a lot of people think who are in this field, who are in these fields. Okay. And I understand where they're coming from. And I'm not opposed overall to the idea of making modifications to humanity to where it can survive uh, in other places. Okay, in other, other, you know, very harsh environments like some of our solar system would be. Um, I'm really not opposed to that. There, I mean, there's there's a huge conversation to have around it. I think we're going to have to save it for the next episode. And I, because I really want to talk about it because, I mean, that's going to create all kinds of things. Um, I mean, and, and to say nothing of the, of the fact that really who among us is smart enough to, you know, genetically modify another human being and plan out a lot of what we should, I guess we could call the unintended consequences of that modification, right? Like give somebody better hearing so they could hear through whatever, I don't know, storms are on some planetoid or something. Uh, I don't know, whatever the case may be, but then you find out that that creates a whole other problem. Their, their enhanced hearing gives them a constant headache or, you know, something like, I mean, like these are, these are very real concerns, very real things to talk about. And I think it's a whole other conversation, kind of a part two that I want to get into in the next Q&A. And I will get to it. I will get into it. Uh, maybe, maybe I can bring somebody on to talk about it as well. But if you have thoughts on it, I'm happy to read yours as well. In fact, anything that I just talked about, if you have comments on it, send them my way and we can do a follow-up in the next Q&A. I think that'd be a lot of fun. So, all right, we're already running long. We're already past an hour. So I want to wrap this baby up. And I am going to wrap it up with, of course, we got an album of the week. You know you always get one of those. Uh, this is... This is a beautiful thing to exist. (laughs) This is nothing less than remarkable that it is a thing that, that it is a, I mean, it's, I think you can get a digital download of it. So it's out there. I mean, I've gotten a download of it, but I think you could purchase a digital download if you want. Um, But there were like, I think about 500 copies made of the CD. This just came out in 2019. It's a soundtrack, okay? It's the 35th anniversary edition of the soundtrack for the movie Mutant. No, it's not an X-Men film. It's from 1984. Almost nobody knows about this fucking film. I know about this movie. I have the DVD. In fact, good luck finding that because I remember when I purchased it on Amazon some time ago, it said it was the last one and it didn't say more on the way. And in fact, I remember opening up the DVD and it smelled damn funny. <laughs> like, I was like, wow, this has been sitting in a stock room for a while. 
Uh, Mutant is a kind of an alien ripoff film uh, from 1984. I mean, it's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. I wouldn't begin to suggest that. Richard Band's score, though, for the for the movie, I think is actually dynamite. Um, I still I appreciate the movie for what it is. I get it that it's ridiculous, but I love it for that. Okay, I love it for what it was trying to do. I mean, you are talking to somebody, you're talking to one of the biggest Roger Corman fans of all time. I've dedicated, I mean, not just Roger Corman, I've dedicated so much of my work to uh, Russ Meyer, right? I mean, if you know, you, you know, Faster Pussycat and, you know, Kill Kill, like if you, I mean, you know the deal. I mean, I love this kind of stuff. You know, doing shit on a shoestring budget and all that and, and trying to come up with, like, implement these really, you know, wild ideas. I'm so on board with this kind of stuff. So, the movie Mutant, okay? You don't have to watch the movie if you don't want, but I love this score by Richard Band. Richard Band has done, uh, actually, he's done some recent compilations of uh, soundtrack work from SG-1 uh, that he that he did uh, just fantastic on that. Uh, he's done some other stuff two throughout the years. Great composer. Uh, I love this soundtrack and I just can't believe like mutant. Nobody else knows about this movie and the fact that there's a 35th anniversary edition release of the full soundtrack for this. And it it is the full deal. It's a 26 track affair. I just think that's amazing. (laughs) It makes me so happy. And I was listening to it. I, I just wanted to go to tears, you know, because you're talking to a guy who, when I was a little human, when I was a child, I I had my dad show me, okay, I mean, then I could figure it out on my own later, but, you know, I had my dad show me, all right, so how do I hook up the, the cassette player to the VCR so that through the aux channel so that I can record audio onto a cassette, onto an audio cassette from a VHS tape? How do I do that, dad? And he showed me. And I did that. I made my own mixtapes of all kinds. I mean, shit from the Karate Kid, shit from Rocky, shit from, I mean, some of these movies like Explorers and a bunch of other ones were, uh, that's another great movie, Explorers, if you've never seen that. Uh, That's a genuinely great movie. That's not just hokey, like Mutant. But I I would just copy the music, you know, from all these things because I wanted to hear these themes, you know. And at the time, I mean, like, the soundtrack business was basically non-existent. I remember what a friend of mine had to go through just to get the soundtrack for Transformers the movie from 1985. And I'm so glad he did because we listened to the fuck out of that and made copies of it. So today, to be able to get, like, full-on remastered editions of these films that most people, again, most people just don't have a memory, um, or, you know, if it wasn't on Netflix, it never existed uh, for most people, it's just, it's wonderful that this stuff exists. So if you want to check it out, get your hands on it, 35th anniversary edition of Richard Band's score for Mutant. If you want to try and find the movie, go for it. Uh, You don't have to buy the DVD, but yeah. Great time. So there it is. Anyway, we'll wrap this baby up and uh, I will see all of you on the other side. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Woo! 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 Wo